Who's glad to be in the house of the Lord today? Wonderful. It's a few become. So, look, if you're visiting with us uh, for the very first time, you've actually come uh, right in the middle of a series that we are using a controversial book called The Shack. Uh, and some of the themes that that book raises as a means of just actually getting to grips with some really sound Bible teaching. So, you know, this is a, uh, an invitational event. It's a doctrinal event. So all this up here, the shack that Mike built, I don't think I can get a carpentry job too quickly. Uh, the cave that Dave built, which is wonderful. And uh, we thank you, Sam, for snow on a 44-degree day, but that has all evaporated. Oh, no, we've got a bit of snow left in the forest. <laughs> So uh, we will today look at the whole issue of where is God at the time of tragedy? It's one of the big questions that the shack does ask. When there's innocent suffering, where is God? And just before we go into that, I'm going to ask Jane just come and share just something that happened out of her life that really dovetails in very neatly with the, the majesty and the mystery of God. And how he works. Oh, there we go. Fantastic. Can't see anything up there, so I think there are people out there. Well, I'm, I've, um, when this series was announced, I was actually reading this track for the second time. I'd forgotten uh, what a good novel it was, and it felt like I was reading it again for the first time. And there was a part in the book where Mac was asking Papa about Missy being alone after the man had taken her. And Papa's response is how that she was actually never alone and how Sarai had wrapped herself around the little girl. And this resonated very deeply with me, and it reminded me of a time when I was actually pregnant with my seventh child. Jaden was my sixth pregnancy, and some of you will know what a miracle he was. Mm. The pregnancy had been going really well. We'd recently moved house, and I was well into my second trimester. Some days feeling very pregnant and a little nauseous still, and other times not so much. We went very excitedly to our, sec- uh, to our 20-week scan, taking my mum and one-year-old Jaden. We saw our baby on the screen, but then we were told the terrible news that our baby Jem had died, but I hadn't actually miscarried. There were a lot of things that went wrong, and I won't go into all of the gory details, but just to say it was terribly mishandled at the cottage hospital that we were at, and the entire experience that day was pretty horrific. After a really gruelling time with the doctor, I ended up going home with no intervention and no real information. We called the elders of our church and we asked if they could pray. We truly believed and we had real faith that God could start our baby's heart. Apart from the elders at our church, I didn't really talk to anybody about it. I didn't want to speak that reality of what we'd heard that day into being. And I knew that nobody other than God could help me during that time. So I spent the time in worship and reading the word. I knew that man could do nothing, but I also knew that God could do all things. I prayed simply as God knew the longing and the desire of my heart. I prayed during that time that God's will would be done. I actually had very few words. I knew that God could start baby Jem's heart, but I actually didn't know whether he would. And so I focused on the truth of who God was. It was a really long three weeks 
that I held baby Jem inside me, not knowing. And then the day came. The actual process of miscarriage that day was horrific on many levels. I was at home until I could manage no more. I actually barely made it to the hospital in time. And yet again, we were very mismanaged. We had severe complications and the theatres were full. Suddenly there was panic. My body had begun to shut down. I could hear and I could feel everything, but I was unable to move or respond at that time. And I nearly died right there on the ward. They had to suddenly clear the ward and Martin was the only visitor allowed to remain. In the end, in order to save my life, they were forced into having to perform a procedure at the bed on the ward without any anesthesia. It was that or I would die. And as terrible as this experience was, I would actually go back there again and I would go through that whole experience again. And you probably think (laughs) I'm mad for saying that. But let me explain. Because there was a point during the process of discovering that Jem had died when I was at home. I was lying on my bed listening to worship because at that point I needed to hear truth. I didn't want to allow my thoughts to wander with the ifs, the buts, the whats and the maybes. I knew that God could do a miracle, but I didn't have any idea as to whether he would intervene or not. I trusted God that he would do, as his word says, that he would cause all things, even this, to come together for his good and for his glory. I knew that God didn't cause this and I didn't blame God, but he was all that I needed at that time. Again, I prayed simply. I didn't have many words. I told God that my heart's desire was for him to start baby Jem's heart and for Jem to be born healthy and at full term. However, I placed my full trust in him, and I continued to pray for his will to be done in my life. And then I just simply continued to worship, quietly on my bed, almost not daring to move, because I didn't want to disturb my baby. But whilst I was there, God came in the most amazing, miraculous way, in a way that I still don't fully have words to describe. I was totally enveloped, encased, lying there with a very, very tangible presence of God, having his arm wrapped completely around me. It was almost a tangible hug from God, but it was so much more than that as well. I mean, God has touched me in many ways before and since, but this was incredibly different. It was an indescribable feeling of love and of completeness and acceptance from the inside out and the outside in all at once. But even then, that still doesn't begin to describe what happened. That tangible presence of God in that moment is wonderful, indescribable and incredible. And that's why I would go through that pain again, just for that moment of experiencing God, that that touch of God in that way again. And the beautiful, beautiful picture of the, in the book of Sarai wrapping herself around Missy in the footwell of the trucks made so much sense to me. And God, God's been so gracious to me and has provided me with many opportunities to speak to women, to speak into the lives of women with infertility issues, with death and grief and loss of their babies, to speak of his love and his comfort and to walk the journey with him. 
And I think reading the shack again, for me, it's added so much fuel to the fire to go deeper again into that intimacy, that real intimacy with my father, to live immersed in his love. I love some of the analogies that are used in the book, and they've been very helpful. And I've used some of those just recently with a few people in my life who are struggling enormously at the moment. One in particular was feeling just incredible loneliness and loss. And as I was talking to her, I was reminded of when Jesus was on the cross and when he said, you know, God, why have you abandoned me? And due to their relationship, and as we heard Mike speak on the Trinity last week, of being three in one, it's actually impossible. God didn't abandon Jesus because they are one. It was just Jesus' feelings at that moment that didn't fit with the reality. So although this person felt lonely, was able to speak truth and speak about the reality of feelings versus the truth. And the truth is that God is with you always, whatever you are going through. And that just seemed to touch you in a way that hadn't previously. I've really enjoyed reading this shack again for a second time because it challenges my thinking. It draws me even closer to God and it's made me want to go deeper and deeper with him. There are so many one-liners in the book that I've been able to mull over. And it's not that I actually agree with everything. And I found myself divided over wanting to finish and yet wanting to linger and wanting to just sit in God's presence. I've sat with my Bible and sought out scriptures over parts I'm unsure on. And with anything like this, there will be some spiritual attack. So I've been praying and interceding that God would have his way among us, that we would all experience such intimacy with him in a way that we haven't before, that he will come and heal those deep hurts and he would be there in a way that maybe he's never been there before for you. And the impact of this would be far-reaching, not only in our church, but in our community too. Amen. Thank you, Jane. Thank you. So, you know, it is a difficult subject, but where is God? Let me just read to you from the message version, Romans chapter 8 from verse 18. I, I love the freshness of the message version. Again, it's not always right, but Eugene Peterson's done a pretty good job. Uh, but sometimes we've heard, we've been around church life for so long, we've heard the scripture so often that we no longer hear it. So that's why. Romans 8.18, that's why I don't think there's any comparison between the present hard times and the coming good times. The created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. Everything in creation is being more or less held back. God reigns it in until both creation and all the creatures are ready and can be released at the same moment into the glorious times ahead. Meanwhile, the joyful anticipation deepens. And ladies, this is where you have an advantage over the men. So you should be going hallelujah, okay? <laughs> this is what it says. Um, all around us, we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the word are simply birth pangs. I don't know if they're simply birth pangs watching my wife give labor. But it's all around us and it's within us. The spirit of God is arousing us within. We also feel these birth pangs. 
these sterile, barren bodies of ours are yearning for a full deliverance. That's why waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. <laughs> Ladies, can you say amen? <laughs> we are enlarged in the waiting. Um, meanwhile, the moment we get tired in waiting, this is nice, God's Spirit is right alongside helping us along. And if we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. He does the praying in us and for us, making our prayer out of wordless sighs and aching groans. He knows us far better than what we know ourselves because of our pregnant condition, and he keeps us present before God. That's why we can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God has worked out into something good. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his dear son. The son stands first in the line of humanity he restored. We see the original and the intended shape of our lives there in him. Isn't it a great rendering? Great truth in there. Now, Billy Graham is a modern giant and has been voted the man of the year by Time magazine and has appeared 57 times in the top 10 most admired respected men in the world by the Gallup poll. In 1949, he was 30 years of age and just beginning his fabulously influential ministry at a crusade in Los Angeles. He shared the ministry at that crusade with Charles Templeton, who, according to Graham's estimate, was a far better preacher than himself. Billy Graham's ministry blossomed, and they estimate that he's preached to over one billion people and has seen over a million people make decisions for Christ. That's impressive. Sadly, Charles Templeton fell away from the faith. It once filled the largest auditoriums in the United States, and he urged people to place their trust in God. Life eroded this confidence, and finally he lost his faith. And he wrote the book, Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. Lee Strobel, in his book, The Case of Faith, records an interview that he had with Templeton. Strobel wants to find out what led to Templeton's abandonment of the faith. So the former preacher had, like many of us, many complaints, issues, and disappointments. Strobel asked him, was there any one thing? Was there a moment? Was there, what was the tipping point for you? And Templeton says, yes, there was. This is what Strobel writes in his book. It was a photograph in Life magazine, he said finally. Really, I said, a photograph? How so? And he narrowed his eyes a bit and he locked off to the side, looked off to the side as if he was viewing the photo afresh and reliving the moment. It was a picture of a black woman in North Africa explained. They were experiencing a devastating drought and she was holding her dead baby in her arms, looking up to the heaven with the most forlorn expression. I looked at it and I thought, is it possible to believe that there's a loving or caring creator when all this woman needed was rain. Here's the biggest challenge, to believe in a loving God when there's evil in the world. You can actually believe in an uncaring God. You can believe in a fatalistic God. 
You can believe in reincarnation as God, or you can believe in no God. But this is the biggest challenge to believe in the God of the Bible, the Christian God, who defines himself as God is love. 1 John stated twice. The Shack as a novel does try to address this thorny issue. The Bible gives us direct revelation on this prickly problem of evil in the world, and that is what I'd like to just discuss today with a few differences. But it is that question, where were you, God? Where was God on September 11 when a terrorist plane flew flew into the World Trade Center? Where were you when Pastor Phil Baker, great man of God in this state, had a brain tumor? Where was God when Keith Green's plane crashed? Some of you still don't even know who Keith Green is. (laughs) But when I was your age, Connie, Keith Green was the guy changing the world. And where was God when Missy was kidnapped by the little lady killer? Or if you like to quote the title of Philip Yancey's book, The Question That Won't Go Away, Why? Why God? So this is not a new problem. In fact, the book of Job in the Bible is perhaps the oldest surviving book in the world, and it takes the problem of evil head on. In one day, the biblical Job loses his health, his family, and his wealth all in the one day. The human complaint is sometimes expressed in those words, where were you, God? Where were you, God, when I needed you? It is fascinating, just as a sidebar, can we just step to a sidebar for a minute? To me, it's very fascinating that the unbeliever often cries out the accusation against us. What about the problem of evil if God's a loving God? Because the truth is, if there is no God, there can be no evil. I know that's a difficult, you know, your brain might go clunk. But if there is no God, there is no morality. To quote Dr. Vesky, he says that if there is no God, then everything is permissible. So there can be no evil. The concept of evil only has meaning in the context of a moral universe. Humans seem to be able to identify that some things may be bad. And yet, if we are just, according to the Darwinists and the evolutionists, we're just advanced apes or biological meat computers, if there's no such thing, then there is actually no such thing as evil. So humans themselves are struggling with this issue. The ethical boomerang has come back on him. Here we have A.C. Grayling, one of the um, five horsemen of the new atheists, and he's actually written a book trying to figure out what is good. How can you be so smart and so dumb <laughs> all at the same time? <laughs> Turn to your name and say, do you know what good is? <laughs> do you know what bad is? He doesn't know. And just to see how twisted and how committed he is, this is the man who has written the humanist Bible. You know, you can actually buy a humanist Bible. He wrote it. So trying to wrestle with it, he's trying to say, well, there's no real evil So he addresses the issue that often Christians will say to people like that, well, what about the Holocaust? Surely that was a bad thing. And this is what he says about the Holocaust. Quote from his book, survivors generally paint a bleaker picture of the camp morality than what the facts actually support. One of the reasons that they need to emphasize the negative aspects of their experience, because that's what makes them special. That's what separates them. And, of course, the other reason, of course, is that it expresses their remorse, even guilt. 
because they escaped and others died. How can such an intelligent man be absolutely so? Can I say stupid in church? Okay. So you see, according to Aces, there's no such thing as evil anyway. Thus, the challenge about evil is a big bluff from a fatalistic worldview. So when you're sharing your faith with someone, they start talking about, well, what about all the starving children? It's a bluff. Because it's only if there's a God that starving children matter. If there is no God, starving children don't matter. Do you understand what I'm saying here today? Help me out. Let me know. So for the, for the humans, the person who doesn't know God, life is a sick joke. The boat is sinking, and you can either choose to go down into the belly of the boat and get drunk while the boat sinks. Or if you want, you could go up onto the deck and get your uniform and salute the, fa- the flag. But the boat's sinking and you will disappear and no one will cry because it doesn't matter. That's the other world view. Now in the shack, one of the things that uh, Mac does is that he, in trying to answer the same question, Mac then has given the opportunity through an, engage, well, through an engagement with a personification of wisdom called Sophia. Now, the Bible actually does a personification of wisdom in the book of Romans. So, book of Proverbs chapter 8. Sorry, my dyslexia is getting in the way. So, the Bible does, Mac takes the same metaphor, does what C.S. Lewis does when he wrote the book, God's in the Dock. He's, oh, David, this must have been painted with gold paint. I won't do any circles today. I'm sorry to disappoint you. (laughs) And what he does is, he says, okay, you don't like the way God's created the universe because there's evil in it. How about you be God for a little while? And so he gets everybody, gets Mac to sit in the chair and he presents them the same issues and says, what would you do? So we're going to do something similar with you this morning. Is that okay? So it it was a good way of helping us to come to grips with what the Bible teaches on this difficult subject. So we're going to do what Mac did. Or if you struggle with that particular analogy, you may prefer more to relate to the movie Bruce Almighty, where the same theme is actually explored. Free will, love, and evil form an unbreakable triangle. Think about what I just said. Free will, love and evil form an unbreakable triangle. Or to put it another way, as the uh, character in Bruce Almighty found out, having all power does not mean you get the girl. (laughs) You can't force love, can you? So here's our thought experiment. Okay, decision. Can I have the house lights up, please? You're going to decide what sort of a universe we build today. Right, this, is, this is for you to do. Okay, I want to ask you a decision. Just assume for a minute that you're God. Just for a minute. don't want anybody going off delusional on me, please. Just for a minute. <laughs> See, my wife and I, we have religious differences. I think I'm God and she disagrees. <laughs> She's laughing. Okay, decision. We're in eternity. In eternity, there's nothing else. It's just us, all right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God and three persons. Yes, it kicks our head in. And we've got a decision. There is nothing there. No time, no space, no matter, nothing, just us. Decision. Do we create or not create? 
Okay, who wants to create? Who doesn't want to create? <laughs> well, Bob's just voted himself out of the building. <laughs> Frank just voted himself. Because this is the deal, you see. <laughs> this, this is the deal. We only get to be here today if we make certain decisions. But most of you would feel that to create's a good idea. Because God's a loving God and inherent in his nature is that he's a creator. That's a part of who him. So what do creators want to do? Hint. Create. Okay. What do, what do cooks wanting you to do? Okay. So what do creators want to do? They want to create. So the decision is create, no, don't create. Of course, you always get a couple of comedians, but most of us want to create. Okay. Second question. Okay. This is harder. Hold your head and say, it's hurting, Mike, make it stop. <laughs> Do we create an infinite universe or a finite universe? Now, if it's infinite, it means that it stays the same forever. It never changes. There's no rub, there's no tickle, there's nothing. Okay? I, I can't find an image to express what infinite would look like? Or do we create a finite universe where you have pretty flowers? Do you know that flowers grow up and then they die? Do you know that then worms come along and they feed? Do you know that a finite universe looks different to an infinite universe? Okay. Who wants to create an infinite universe? Not even. Oh, Bob does. <laughs> You'll go for that. Good on you, Bob. Who wants to create a finite universe? Who's not going to put up the hand no matter what I say? Okay. <laughs> it's an oldie, but it's one of mine. It's good. So it seems that most of you are pretty content that we create and we create a finite universe that's beautiful and it's got a plan to it. Agreed? Next decision. Oh, my brain's hurting. Not too many. Okay. Here's the biggie. Do we create a free universe or do we create a universe that's automated and there is no freedom? Okay. Now, here's, here's the risk though, is if you create a free universe, we are actually deciding that we will allow for the possibility of evil. It may not happen, but the moment it's genuinely free, just not pretend free, we are allowing for bad stuff. We're permitting it. We're actually the possibility. So that's the free. If we create the non-free universe, then it's going to be a different universe. I wanted to find a doll with a string on it. My daughter threw hers around. But you know in the old days, now they're all electronic, so you can actually pull on this cord and the dolly would go, I love you, I love you, I love you. And you know, if you wanted to feel good, you could pull it again. I love you, I love you, I love you. You could actually even move up the hands a bit, you know, like that. I love you. I bring this one. I love you. I love you. I love you. I, I don't think anyone has ever felt their needs met by a doll that says, "I love you. I love you. I love you." If you do, come to me for counselling soon. <laughs> but that's the rub here, isn't it? We either create free, take the risk of evil, or we create non-free. And we won't actually get love, the real stuff. God is love. He creates for a purpose 
and that is to actually spread genuine love. All right, ready? Who wants to have a non-free universe? Actually, no, not even Bob this time. Okay. <laughs> Who wants a free universe? Well, congratulations. That's why you're here. Literally, that is why we are here. That is exactly the deal. So this is the narrative which the Bible gives as our answer for why we live in the world that we live. This is not the perfect world, but it's the best world to get a perfect world. So there's the issue. Free will means a free world, and a free world means the possibility that it won't that people will do the wrong thing. It's not perfect, but it's the only world you can create if you want morally free, loving people. There's no other way. God cannot make a square circle. God cannot make a married bachelor. God cannot make two plus two equal five. Neither can he create a free will will a free will. Blah, blah, blah. Sorry, put my put my false tip. Neither can God make a free world without the possibility of evil. But you see, God is so, 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 so smart and clever. He thought, I don't know really. Well, actually, in his foreknowledge, he knows everything. But he says, if they do sin, I can fix it. I have a way of making it okay. So there it is. There is no other way. God lets us go as the father of the prodigal son lets his younger son go. He does sovereignly intervene into history from time to time when his ultimate purposes are at stake. But that's the exception of the rule. The Apostle Paul was knocked off his horse on the way to Damascus because God needed to bring his plan to fulfillment and to see the Gentiles won to him so that you could be here today to listen to me. But that's the exception. He lets most rebels ride off into the sunset to their eternal destruction. It's interesting, isn't it? I love my daughter very much. I keep telling her she's my number one daughter. She reminds me I'm your only daughter, Dad. Right now she's making some very bad choices. I actually have the character and the ability based on my, particularly my before salvation days, to be incredibly angry, strong. I would have the power to lock her in a room. I could restrict her. I could put bars over the windows. And if she didn't like that, I could just open up a little flap and just give her, give her food now and again. I could control her. But that's not love. That's abuse. It doesn't matter how much I love my daughter. But if I really love her, I have to actually let her have her choices. And I'll still wait for the day when she comes down the road. I'll told her I'll meet her any place, anywhere. You just turn around and come home. And we'll be back. And God has to do that with every one of us. He could stop you messing up your life. He could. But he loves you enough. He says you're created in my image. You do get to choose to eat of the tree again of the knowledge of good and of evil. You get to choose. 
God loves us that much, trusts us that much. And he has a plan for, uh, for those of us who then say, God, work in my life so that I may come back to you. Amazingly. The long silence. I have referred this to you on a number of occasions, but I just want to read you. It's a piece of prose. The book of Revelations in chapter 8, verse 1 says, And there was a long silence in heaven of about half an hour. So the Apostle John has been brought up into this amazing place. There's light, there's sound, there's smoke, there's rainbows, there's cherubim, there's 24 elders, there's holy... This is an amazing place. And just before God opens up the seven seals, there's a silence in heaven for half an hour. This is a deafening silence. Anyway, someone has speculated, maybe this is what happened in that half-hour silence in heaven. At the end of time, billions of people were seated on the great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them, but some groups near the front talked heatedly, not cringing, not ashamed, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Snapped a pert young brunette. She ripped open her sleeve to reveal the tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. And in another, a Negro boy lowered his collar and says, what about this? Showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for being for no crime except for being black. Another in the crowd was a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer? Was it my fault? And far out across the plains, there are hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint about God for the evil and the suffering he had permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven, where it was all sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear or hunger or hatred. What did God know at all of what man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he'd suffered the most, a Jew, a Negro, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed, arthritic, a familiar-eyed child. In the vast plain, they consulted with each other. And at last, they were ready to present their complaint, their case to God. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted from the beginning. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think that he is crazy. May be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured beyond belief. And then at the last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die so there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify. And as each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up before the throne of the people assembled. And when at last they had finished pronouncing their sentence upon God, there was a long silence. No one uttered a word. No one moved. Because suddenly, all knew that God 
had already served his sentence. You see, the cross is God's answer to the problem of evil. Whilst we don't fully understand that, it is our hope that the very worst thing that has ever happened in history ended up in resulting in being the very best thing that happened in history. It's the clue that God can do it, that God brings resurrection out of crucifixion, that God brings life out of death, that God brings peace out of confusion, that God brings health out of sickness. This is our God and this is our hope. Cold exists as the absence of heat. Dark exists as the absence of light. Evil exists as the absence of God. We have been left in charge of the earth and we are the ones to blame for evil. It is our choice. It is our decision. It is ours to rule. The more God we have in our lives, the less evil we will experience. The more God we have in our families, the less evil we'll experience in our home. The more God we have in our community, the less evil we'll have in our streets. Can someone say amen? The Bible has always made a connection between leprosy and evil. Leprosy deadens our senses. The sufferer no longer feels the physical pain so they can accidentally step on a nail and never remove it. They can eat their own tongue, no longer feeling the pain. They can go and sit down while a rat eats away at their feet. They would tell you that pain is your friend. Evil and pain is to teach us that there's a cost to rebellion, that there's a cost to selfishness, there's a cost to saying, God, get out of my life, get out of our schools, get out of our parliament, get out of our nation. There's a cost to that. The Bible teaches us, though, that the day will come when God himself will wipe away all our tears and there will be no suffering, no pain, that forever and ever and ever, Revelations 21.14, that God himself will wipe away our tears. So creation is pregnant with the expectation of the day when all things will be born to life, to love, and to freedom. Richard Nabel wrote the uh, Serenity Prayer, often uh, very much associated with the Alcoholics Movement, but it's probably one of the most uh, well-known mottos you'll see in Christian homes and whatever. I would like to read to you the full prayer today, and then I'll close. It's a great prayer. Try and listen to it today with fresh ears. God, grant me the the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things that I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Accept, courage, wisdom. Getting those three right makes a great difference. The rest of the poem that's not often quoted now says, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, taking, as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is and not as I would have it. 
trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may reasonably that I may be reasonably happy in this life, but supremely happy in him forever in the next. God grant me the ability to accept that which I cannot change, the courage to change what I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I'm going to ask the band up, and we're going to sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus, and uh, we'll close and we'll pray. I know it's hot and humid. We're just going to spend a few moments. Did anybody did that help anybody today? Anybody help did that help somebody? We're gonna pray. Let's let's turn our eyes upon Jesus. We all face amazing things. Some of us may still be carrying the baggage of uh, things that have happened in the past. You know, we might have gone through deep waters, deep pains. But somehow God makes it okay. As we see Jesus, as we see Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Jesus Christ and not as your personal saviour and then we're going to sing that uh, great anthem 10,000 reasons and then we're going to stay back and we're going to pray with you this morning you know when we talk about some of these really deep issues some of these uh, really difficult times when you do face things like death and disappointment of 
divorce, maybe many different things. But if today if God's touching you, there's a, there's a, God just wants to give you a heart. He wants to do what he did for Jane, what he did to do for the fictional character Mac, to somehow come and embrace you. You know, as I grew up, every once in a while, I'd go through something really traumatic as a little boy. You know, you fall over, to skin your knees. I was riding a bicycle, went through the rose bushes. And sometimes all that mum or dad could do, more often than mum though, is to say, come here. And she'd just put her arms around me and say, it's okay. It'll be all right. I'll make it all better. I'm still bleeding. I'm still hurting. But there's something about just getting into the arms of a loved parent that says you're going to be safe. You're going to be okay. And God would love to do that with you here this morning. So, Ravi, thank you. So I think the best thing to do now is just to give anyone who wants to receive the Lord the opportunity to do that. Um, why don't we just take a seat for a minute and then we'll, we'll sing again after that. But... Um, it's not an accident that you're here today. Um, I think the Lord's drawn us all here to hear these messages and to come through all the things we've come through um, to develop to the point we are and then to take us into the plan he has for us. So um, why don't we just bow our heads for a minute and I'll just ask anyone here who would like to receive the Lord into his life or her life um, to raise their hand right now and we'll pray with you to receive Lord Jesus into your life and to have a new relationship with him. If you just uh, raise a hand, is there anyone here who feels that? Thank you, Father. Just one more moment to look across. Father, I just thank you for the message we've had today and for the opportunity we have to come closer to you. Lord, as we move on, Father, now we, we're just going to worship a little bit more and hand over to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Let's sing again. I have another reason to sing again. Jesus, on my soul.